Wow, this has been quite a week. It's only the first week of 2021. Uh, on Wednesday, I'm sure you know, an angry mob of Trump supporters stormed Capitol Hill uh, over what they believe uh, was a rigged election. Members of Congress, reporters and others were forced to shelter in place and or evacuate. At least one woman was shot and killed by Capitol Police. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be more information uh, flooding the news in our social media feeds in the hours and days to come. Uh, and of course, Georgia. Democrats uh, reclaimed the Senate after voters elected John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock uh, to represent them in Congress. Um, so the news just doesn't appear to be slowing down anytime soon. What a chaotic start to 2021. But we hope this episode gives you a little life and energy as we kick off the new year. This is Temperature Check, a new podcast from Grist. Temperature Check is a weekly show about climate, race, and culture. I'm your host, Andrew Simon. And on today's episode, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Typically at the top of the show, we bring on a co-homie to speak with us about the news of the week and how it relates to climate. Today's episode is entirely devoted to Dr. Marshall Shepard, who's based in Georgia. His name has been floated as the possible next head of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, uh, under the Biden administration. Dr. Shepard is a professor and he directs the Atmospheric Sciences Program at the University of Georgia. He's a climate and weather expert and hosts the podcast Weather Geeks. Uh, He also wrote an important book about race, which we're going to ask him about. Uh, We'll get right into that conversation after this short break. Hi, I'm Mirka, the Social Media Engagement Fellow at Grist.org. Temperature Check is a new show about climate, race, and culture produced by Grist and made possible by listeners like you. Founded in 1999, Grist remains committed to changing the national narrative around climate. And as a nonprofit, none of our work is possible without the steady and loyal support from people like you. At a time when our global community demands action to address the climate crisis, our work at Grist has never been more important. Every day we work tirelessly to bring you the climate news that matters most. And for us to engage our audience of millions of people, we need you. So thank you for joining today's episode and please consider making a donation to Grist today. Donate now and your gift will be matched dollar for dollar. Thanks for tuning in. Right. And we're back. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Marshall Shepard. And we should note this conversation was taped before uh, this week's events unfolded. We are just days away from the presidential inauguration, particularly in the climate arena, and a lot of not so hopeful stuff, right? Um, When it comes to the climate, pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement, car emission standards having been relaxed, uh, of course, worsening natural disasters, the list goes on. But as a scientist working, at the center of all sorts of interesting breakthroughs on weather and climate modeling. I'm just kind of wondering from your perspective, Dr. Shepard, is there anything in the last four years that jumps out is maybe exciting or hopeful, something that has gotten lost in all of the bad news? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. And, mm. and I agree. I, I think that we are on the verge of a, a new perspective nationally and a different right. conversation about climate as uh, the, the Biden-Harris administration takes note. Removing uh, the United States from the Paris Agreement and just the anti-science mood that has been out yeah. there has been a bit disconcerting. But what I would say, if there is a bright side, there's quite a bit of action going on at the local and state level by yeah. faith-based organizations, by hmm. military. Right, right. And where do you see the Biden-Harris administration 
taking the country when it comes to kind of high-level climate policy? Or maybe at least what are your hopes for that? You're going to see climate crossing through all of the agencies, Mm. even agencies that you might not think about. Of course, we think about EPA, NASA, and NOAA, but I think you're going to see climate discussed within Department of Housing, Urban, and Development, within the labor. I mean, all of the cabinets, National Security, Secretary of State. Climate is one of those cross-cutting issues. It's not just a science issue. It's a kitchen table issue. It's a national security. It's an economic issue. It's an issue of water and energy. And so I think this sort of holistic cross-cutting approach of the Biden administration and just also prioritizing the science uh, are things that I'm excited about. Yeah. And on the science, that's one thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, What's maybe one or two of the big scientific storylines that you'll be following uh, in 2021? Well, you know, the Green New Deal is out there. I don't know that it's fully fleshed out. I'll be watching to see how the discussions like that take place in terms of how we're going to address moving away from a fossil fuel-based economy to a renewable energy economy. And then while doing that, making sure that we're not stepping on the toes of marginalized frontline or vulnerable communities Mm -hmm. in that process. I'll also be looking at the next National Climate Assessment Report is right, coming right. forth in 2021, I believe, or at least the beginnings of it. And there have been some rumblings in the current administration because there have been some people placed in those positions uh, making decisions on the National Climate Assessment Report that uh, some would question their sort of consensus perspective on climate science. And so right. I think there will be a little bit of cleanup that will need to be done as the Biden administration moves in. But once the dust settles, I'll be interested to see how the next National Climate Assessment Report comes forth and how much of what we call attribution science makes it in, this notion that we can attribute certain extreme weather events today to climate change. I want to shift gears a little bit uh, and talk about race. You uh, wrote and released a book, uh, The Race Awakening of 2020, a six-step guide for moving forward. And, you know, In the book, you talk about segregation and you say you learned about it from your mother. She told you about how schools were segregated when she was growing up. And I'm just wondering if you might share some of your first experiences with race and understanding racism. Yeah, and that book was motivated by the what was going on after George Floyd and George Armand Aubrey and Breonna Taylor. I was sitting there one Sunday morning and frustrated. I I just needed to say and do something. You know, I grew up in a small community about 40 miles north of Atlanta at the time. was a very rural community. It's really suburbia now. Mm. The race differences were clear. The schools were majority uh, white. Uh, there yeah. was a, a small percentage of African Americans or black people. You'd go into certain communities and get called the N-word. The county that I grew up in as a reference point, Cherokee County, is right next to Forsyth County, Georgia. Oprah Winfrey, around that time, did a show in Forsyth County because it was a county where no black people lived. And in fact, Mm. black people had been run out of the county. So exposure to, oh, yeah, let's tell this race joke or make these jokes. These types of things, these microaggressions were sort of, they weren't microaggressions then. They were very aggressive to sort of be a black kid in school, elementary school or high school, and have your white friends joking. I was like, oh, don't worry about it. It's just a joke. Don't take it personal type of thing. I think we've moved beyond that to some degree. Yeah. My older self looks back at that and it was really kind of almost standardized or almost institutionalized some of the things that we experience uh, that now probably wouldn't fly, but now we're dealing with more of what I call in the book microaggressions. I wanted to ask you about that. So yeah, maybe you can just break down what a microaggression is for those who don't know, and then maybe a follow-up is kind of what your personal experiences with microaggressions have been. 
microaggressions are these little sleight of hand things that are said or done that on the surface may not actually even appear to be offensive and in some Mm. cases may intend to be compliments. So for example, uh, something that I experience often, and I'm sure you may have experienced it too, Andrew, I I come off stage giving a lecture in a large lecture hall or uh, the next day and someone will come up to me in the lecture hall or or email me and say, you're so well-spoken. You're so articulate. You speak so well. Yeah. Well, I have three college degrees. Right, right. The two parents that were educators, why wouldn't I speak so well? Right. But interestingly enough, I've talked to white colleagues that do the same things that I do, and they said no one has ever told them they speak so well or that they're articulate. So it's just one of those microaggressions. Uh, I've, you've heard, I've heard people say, wow, you're really a credit to your race, or wow, you're, well, why do I need to be a credit to my race? Why does my race need a credit? That's an insult disguised as a compliment. Someone that perhaps um, may have certain facial features, someone may come up and say, oh, where, what country are you from? Well, they may be from Seattle. Mm. And in the book, you write about confirmation bias and cognitive dissonance as it pertains to racism. And what was so fascinating to me reading that is you've spoken about these exact same themes when it comes to the public's understanding or sometimes misunderstanding of climate science, right? So I just, I just am curious, you know, have you drawn parallels between bias when it comes to understanding science and then also bias when it comes to understanding race? Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, uh, one of the things I talked about in a TED talk that I gave uh, is this idea of confirmation bias, which is this notion that people will always default to information or seek out information that's consistent with what they already believe. We also have come from our own marinades. People, people mm-hmm. when I use that term in the book, they thought I, was a, I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. When you marinate vegetables or meat, they sit there in the marinade and then they take on that flavor. We all have our own personal marinades, whether they be our politics, our religion, our culture, our so forth. And so those marinades of religion, politics, culture, they shape people's views on things like science, things yeah. like race. If you've never grown up around uh, a diverse population of African-Americans or Latinx or Native Americans, you are more inclined to fall into those confirmation biased, um, marinade perspectives on who those people are. And so that's why one of the things I challenge people to do even now, try to have a sort of a non sort of organized social experience with someone different than you, someone mm. outside of your marinade, go to dinner with them. Um, yeah. Do some things that you would normally not. We're, we're around people. I have two kids. We're around people that are different from us all the time at basketball practices or volleyball practices or PTA meetings. But those are forced settings. Uh, it, it, we only really start to break into those marinades or sort to season those marinades, if you will, once you're able to really get to know people. So I think those things really shape people's perspectives on science and race. And I love the marinade metaphor. Uh, I'm curious, have you experienced any breakthroughs? Uh, It could be with race, it could be with climate skepticism, uh, just some example of unexpected progress from this standpoint. Absolutely. One of the odd things in climate science is a lot of the TV meteorologists out there in the nation, some of them were climate skeptics, believe it or not. And I served as president of the American Meteorological Society in, in 2013, so I know a lot of these people. In my TED talk that I gave at TEDx UGA a few years ago, I included Greg Fischel. Greg Fischel right. is, a, is a scientist, a meteorologist that was once a skeptic, but he actually started looking at the data and realizing some of his own confirmation biases, and he flipped on things. 
For much of my adult life, I was a hardcore skeptic. I didn't think man had anything to do with climate change. And then several years ago, I had an aha moment. Woke up one morning with a question in my brain, and the question was this. Greg, are you doing the same thing that the people you're criticizing are doing in the sense that you're only looking for information to support what you already think? Fancy term for that is confirmation bias. And to be honest, I was... Give you another example. During the post... Uh, George Floyd. I I think we all, as people of color, had an experience where we had other people reaching out to us, apologizing and asking what they could do and so forth. That's why I titled the book A Race Awakening, because I thought, unlike many of the things I'd seen in the past with Trayvon Martin or Rodney King and other things, this felt different. Mm. You could see the knee in the neck. You could see the suffering. There was no way anyone could wiggle out of that or, or try to explain that away. So there, it was an opportunity for us to engage because people were reaching out. And I actually had a person from my hometown say I was always offended when someone said I had privilege. He said, I didn't grow up wealthy. I didn't grow up with a lot of money. So I didn't understand when people said I, I, I had privilege. But now that I've read your book and seen what some of you are saying, I understand that privilege Mm. is not about the financial aspects of what I have, but this notion that I don't necessarily have the right to tell you, Marshall, what you should be feeling about what happened to George Floyd. Or I don't have the right, Marshall, to tell you why you should worry and tell your 13-year-old son not to run out of a convenience store after he just bought a bottle of Gatorade. Something that simple that perhaps some other parent and child may not have to worry about. We instruct our child not to do things like that because there is a different reality that he faces. What you just said on the one hand reflects the power of social media to spread the understanding of an atrocity like police violence, police racism. But then on the flip side, there's also the misinformation, the disinformation, uh, how perspectives are swayed, confirmation bias as you're talking about. So it's a bit of a loaded question, but how do you handle social media as harnessing it as a way to spread scientific information? Um, So let's start with that. I'm a firm believer in the net positive of social media, okay. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I think they're very valuable. If we aren't there as scientists or stakeholders or people of influence uh, in certain spaces, those without the expertise, those with agendas will gladly fill the gaps that we leave behind. Mm. The public is not cracking over the science, open the scientific journals. They're not reading right. MLK's letter from a Birmingham jail. They are getting quick bits of information in social media. And so we have to be the antidote. We have to be the vaccine, if you will, for the mm. viruses on social media to use the COVID-19 backdrop. And so I engage. Big question here, and I, you started to answer it in the context of social media, but what do scientists typically get wrong when communicating about climate change? A key tenet of science communication is knowing your audience. And if you don't know your audience, it's like throwing darts at a dartboard with the lights off. Yeah. I find that a lot of scientists will go into a rotary club or a church meeting with the same exact message that they deliver at their scientific conferences or in their scientific papers. And you can't yeah. do that. They're using jargon like biases and feedbacks and, and trend lines. When someone hears positive trend in CO2 or carbon dioxide, to most people, positive sounds like a good thing. When that's a bad thing. So we have to be aware of our, our biases. You've written a bit about environmental justice and you've connected redlining and heat zones and how that affects Black communities and other uh, communities of color. And do you still find yourself needing to kind of thread that needle with environmental justice um, to give that kind of on-the-ground perspective of how climate change is adversely affecting certain communities? We have this extreme weather climate gap where 
uh, marginalized African-American minority poor communities are going to experience more of the brunt of climate change yeah. just because of who they are, their their economic situation or where they where they live. So like Bob Bullard always says about environmental justice, your zip code should not determine your vulnerability to a hurricane mm. or heat wave. But it does. And my, even some own studies in my own group at the University of Georgia have found that in Atlanta and parts of the Carolinas, African-Americans are 60 to 80 percent more likely to live in areas that flood. And that all goes back to the economic or the wealth gap. It's yeah. all connected. Everyone in 2005 was affected by Hurricane Katrina along the Gulf Coast. Everyone was equally exposed. But if you look at the faces that were in the Superdome uh, needing food, uh, medical care, shelter, uh, they were the marginalized, disadvantaged and minority populations in those communities because they don't have the sort of resilience or adaptive capacity mm. to bounce back or to have an insurance policy or go to Atlanta for a week in a hotel to get away from the hurricane. These are examples of what I call extreme weather climate justice issues. What's the hardest part of your job? I think the most difficult part of the job is as a scientist, sometimes you see what's happening. You understand the urgency the risk. But that's all you can do is some cases report the science, give credible information. You want to see that next step taken. And oftentimes because of the procedures of our policymaking bodies and so forth, you know what needs to be done, but you just can't get it over that hump. I was curious, Dr. Shepard, what work have you done to bring uh, underrepresented groups to the sciences and in particular your field of atmospheric science? When I was president of the American Meteorological Society, we knew that African-American were about 2% of our membership, uh, Hispanic about wow. 1%. Wow. So it's real low and has not changed much. Those numbers still aren't moving. Interestingly enough, as a professor, I recruited in the last 10 years two African-American men to come work for me uh, as graduate students and get mm. their PhDs, both of whom have graduated now. One's a professor at Florida State University. The other is a scientist at the U.S. Forest Service that they were the first and second African-American males to get a PhD from our department at the University of Georgia. And they would never have been there if I didn't actively seek them out. Mm. On paper, some departments may not have given them the opportunity. Oh, their GRE scores are okay, but they just don't. I I look past those things. You've got to go and kind of dig and understand this person's capable of doing a PhD. So I think it takes that sort of grassroots on the ground effort Mm. in addition to all of these programs and internships and things that allow people to check off boxes, but sometimes don't necessarily move the needle on the numbers. In the book, you talk about growing up in the Southern Baptist Church, and um, I believe you talk about how your family continues to go to churches uh, in your area. How does faith inform your work as a scientist? I see uh, and understand my faith as someone that grew up as a Christian, but I also understand science. And I I never had any tension between the two. I never Mm. have. But... You know, it's what's interesting about that is other people seem to struggle with this notion that people can understand science and still be of faith. Right. It informs me because I think, you know, the basic tenets of my faith are, you know, you treat people how you want to be treated, love thy neighbor, manage and be good stewards of our planet. That's scriptural, but it's what we're also doing as scientists, climate scientists. And so when I go and speak to church groups, you know, I, I have a climate change talk that is firmly based on the scripture. I talk about things like stewardship of the earth and point to scripture that you know, that looks into uh, how climate is changes naturally and now how we probably have a fingerprint on it as human beings in our climate system. So there are no inconsistencies as far as I can tell 
uh, from my own personal perspective. And there are a lot of others like me out there, like Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, for example. Yeah. And in your world, Dr. Shepard, uh, I imagine communicating about climate change can be demoralizing, not to mention the extra obstacles you've experienced being a black man in the field. So, you know, what keeps you going? Well, you know, it's interesting. I <laughs> had a situation one time where I had written something in Forbes and someone disagreed. So they sent an email, you know, talking about why I was wrong. And they were wrong, by the way. And I pointed it out. And mm. so they didn't like quite like the fact that I pointed it out. So they forwarded me this email thread or chain. And what was interesting about it is on that thread, there were all of these scientists, some of which I knew very well, hmm. that were disparaging me. It was like, oh, hmm. he's the black. He's just ascended his position because he's black. And so... You know, it really reminded me, even in that moment, that people that I could be walking the halls with in a scientific conference talk about you like that and have that perspective. So it always keeps me on guard. I, I'm not naive. I, I know that exists. But to just see it so explicitly, you know, you know, just gave me another coat of armor to put on when I'm dealing with not only the science climate skeptics, but also the skeptics because they maybe aren't accustomed to having an African-American scientist in a position of leadership or influence like I've been fortunate to have. So what gives me hope, however, I think those are the anomalies as a professor that and where I deal with the younger generation, but even, even gener- people our age and younger, um, I think I see a shift. It's going to take a cycle to get rid of, because a lot of those folks in that email thread were a bit older. I think we're somewhere in the transition period, but we're not quite there. Yeah, earlier in in the season, we spoke with a doctor who uh, works with medical students, and he talked about how the you know the younger generations of medical students they can just so much more clearly see these connections between climate, racial inequity, grassroots activism. Are you seeing that uh, with your students as well? Oh, absolutely. That's what gives me hope. I don't have to convince these students of that the climate is changing, first of all, but then they right. also see the connections to uh, social justice issues right. or to race or to the economy and so forth. All right, we're now going to pivot a little bit to the final segment of the show. And this is where we like to devote some time to something that may seem a little offbeat. And today we're going to talk about fatherhood. And yes, this is a little self-serving because by the time this uh, episode airs, uh, I should be a father. And Dr. Shepard, you're a father as well. So, um, you know, thank you for sticking with us. And I wanted to kind of ask you a few questions about uh, parenting, if that's okay. Absolutely. So I'm getting ready to welcome this baby boy into the world, uh, my first child. Dr. Shepard, I believe in the book you say you have two teenagers, right? I have a 16, a 17-year-old daughter, excuse mm. me now, and a 13-year-old son. And uh, have you had conversations with them about race? How and when have those conversations showed up? You have to have those conversations yeah. with them. You know, I'm a big hip-hop fan, and one of my favorite hip-hop mm. artists is Goody Mob, who just released mm. an album called sure. Survival Kit. and it's a part of their survival kit to have these conversations because there they're are realities that they're going to face that your son's going to face and others. Uh, they're going to face situations where people are going to have a priori assumptions about who they are or the threat that they are. Uh, we first started having these conversations with both of them after Trayvon Martin uh, yeah. because my daughter was just old enough to kind of sort of see what happened but didn't really appreciate the complexity of what's going on. Uh, the reason that we knew that... Uh, there was an issue or that, that she was listening is just this past year, she had to write a, a memoir for a class assignment in her language mm. arts. And she asked us to read it. And it was all about how Trayvon Martin incident was a turning point for her on race. 
And so wow. it was really interesting to see, okay, she heard us, even though she may not necessarily always share that she heard us. That writing of hers told us that she heard us. And our son, who's a bit younger than she is, but he he, he understands uh, why, you know, you, you might be playing in the yard with your friends. Don't make a motion with a gun like you're shooting at someone because that could cost you your life. Even as we're taping this, I just read about a young man, uh, I believe it was in Ohio, that was shot to death. He was holding yeah. a sandwich, but they said he was holding a gun. And so, you know, you have to have these conversations. And what kinds of questions are your kids asking you these days? Well, you know, <laughs> I have a 17-year-old, so not much because they don't <laughs> talk to you very much anymore. They're, Got it. Noted. <laughs> it just kind of asked you for money. That's the question. I get sure, most. sure, sure, sure. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, it may just be my kids. They don't necessarily have those conversations with me unless I bring mm. them up. So, Okay. Gotcha. What do you learn from them? Um, that's a good question. Um, sometimes, especially my son, just to, you know, try to be live and be carefree. He's a very carefree kid. Mm. He just has a great time. He's you know, like like most 13-year-old boys. He loves his video games. He loves sports. He loves those types of things. And he just enjoys life. From my daughter, I, I don't know if I've learned this from her or maybe it just reaffirms who I am and maybe she picked up some of this from me, but she kind of lets things roll off her shoulders. She's very well adjusted to deal with some of the realities that she's going to face in life. And I'm wondering if these conversations with your teenagers, do they affect how you communicate about, you know, climate environment? You know, does that inform your role as a science communicator? You well, know, I think just in the way I've communicated with my family all along has, not yeah. just my kids, but sure. I grew up in a family that aren't necessarily a lot of college degree holders. I grew up in a very sort of modest family. My mom and dad went to college. I didn't grow up with my dad, though. I grew up with my mother. The majority of my family weren't college educated. And you know, my, my wife is college educated, has a master's degree, but not in science. And so how I talk about science and climate communication is shaped by explaining things to them. Because if I can explain it to them and they actually understand it, then they're pretty much a, a benchmark for the broader public. Dr. Shepard, thank you so much for hopping on the pod to share your story uh, share your insights as a climate scientist and also just share a little bit more about your family. Uh, this has been such a great conversation. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Where can people find you online? I'm out there on Twitter at, at Dr. Dr. Shepherd, Shepherd like uh, the sheep 2013. So at Dr. Shepherd 2013 on Twitter and on Instagram, I'm at Marsh for FSU. And the book's available on Amazon. So go check it out. Excellent. Well, you heard it here. If you don't know now, you know, Dr. Marshall Shepard, thanks again so much for dropping by the podcast. Temperature Check is a podcast from Chris, produced in collaboration with Reasonable Volume. It's hosted by me, Andrew Simon. It's produced by Brianna Flores with editing by Elise Hugh and Rachel Swaby. Caroline Saunders is Chris' chief of staff and this podcast marketing lead. Sound engineering is by Mark Bush. Chris is a nonprofit, reader-supported newsroom covering climate justice and solutions. If you'd like to support what we do, you can rate, subscribe, and tell all your friends to subscribe to Temperature Check. You can also help to sustain our work by going to grist.org slash donate. That's G-R-I-S-T dot org slash donate. Thank you for listening. Until next time.